Welcome. It's indisputable. I'm your host, Rashad Richie. Good to be with you. We have a lot on the agenda today. Break it down. News of the day. None other than Ravana Rebel HQ superstar contributor. Always fascinating to have her analysis. Top story of the day. Hell of a thing. Two black women, let's put them up, were subjected to the extreme lies and threats connected to Trump and his evil empire. You have Wandria Shea Moss on the left and her mother, Ruby Freeman, on the right. They signed up to do the thing that's required in democracy, to be an election worker. Without election workers, your democracy falls apart completely. Out of the state of Georgia, Rudy Giuliani, claimed these two women manipulated the votes during the 2020 presidential election. And that somehow these two women are the reason that Donald Trump is not president. I know that makes no sense, but we're talking about Trump world, okay? Rudy Giuliani's trial is coming to a close as attorneys wrap up their closing arguments. The jury is said to begin deliberating on how much the former New York City mayor may have to pay the two former Georgia election workers for defamation. Freeman and Moss filed a multi-million dollar lawsuit against Giuliani after he made fraudulent claims that the poll workers committed election fraud and stole votes during the 2020 election presidential cycle. His allegations ultimately incited racial harassment and numerous death threats against both, which forced Freeman to flee from her home in fear. Giuliani already conceded that he made defamatory statements, meaning he lied on them. Now it's up to an eight member jury in Washington DC to determine how much he will have to pay Freeman and Moss. In their suit, the women stated they should be paid up to 43 million in damages for the distressing impacts and reputational harm caused by Giuliani's false inflammatory statements. During Giuliani's trial, their lawyer argued that the payout increase to 24 million each, totaling 48 million to a 48 million payout, they're arguing that the money is too high. Freeman delivered her testimony in court, as well as where she mentioned how even Donald Trump repeated Giuliani's false allegations of voter manipulation. During a recording of a phone call to the state, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, in which the former president worked to compel state election officials to find him enough votes to win the state, he invoked Freeman's name. More than a dozen times and claimed she cheated and committed election fraud. That call took place just four days before the deadly US Capitol insurrection. Now I'm gonna get into some of these quotes here, but I wanna remind everybody that this is likely a conspiracy. While Giuliani is on trial for defamation, if you look at the timeline of events and how Donald Trump started to utilize the narrative to paint a picture to election workers and to the chief elections officer, it looks like a one-two combo was actually happening behind the scenes. If Giuliani can successfully create a narrative against these two women, then somehow Trump is able to successfully leverage the narrative with the Secretary of State and the election 
workers in his office. That did not happen. Thankfully, there's more. I just felt like really Freeman testified. The president talking about me, me, how mean, how evil. I just was devastated. Me, I didn't do nothing. It made me feel like you don't care that I'm a real person. He didn't know what he was talking about. Really? She added, he had no clue what he was talking about. He was just trying to put my name, to put a name to somebody stealing ballots, which was totally a lie. End quote. So let me say this. Trump did know what he was talking about. He knew he was lying. He knew he was lying on actual human beings. You are right about one point. He does not believe you're human, not in his world. You are subhuman to him. You are simply a pawn on the chessboard. As a matter of fact, no one around him is human other than him. He is the only person that matters on the planet Earth inside of his mind. He will utilize everybody around him, including his own family, to get to his goal. There's more. Giuliani will not testify in this trial, even though he admitted over the summer that his claims about Freeman and Moss were defamatory. He won't budge on his assertion that his statement, his statements were protected speech and never caused damage to them. That's insane. All right. It caused significant damage to both women, including anxiety, death threats, loss of opportunity at employment, and more. They're trying to end Mr. Giuliani. That's what Sibley told the jury, the attorney. They're trying to end Mr. Giuliani. <laughs> he restated that argument and his closing arguments while acknowledging that Giuliani did wrong them. Using the words irresponsible and wrongful conduct to decry his client's behavior. However, he stated that he believes the damages the women are requesting come out to a catastrophic sum and requested the jury to consider a penalty equal to his client's actions. Um, so Michael Gottlieb, the attorney representing Freeman and Moss, argued that jurors should send a message in the amount they choose because Giuliani abused his notoriety and access to power to scapegoat his clients. Facts matter, the attorney said, truth is truth, and you will be held accountable. Um, let's put out one of them per trial notes by journalist um, Brandy. Um, Bushman. Here were some of the racial threats sent to Ruby Freeman via email, read aloud in court. Next email, we are coming for you and your family. Ms. Ruby, safest place for you right now was in prison, or you will swing from the trees. Next email to Ruby Freeman, I pray I will be sitting close enough to hear your next snap. And there are so, so many more. Um, very simple question. Giuliani is saying, well, they're trying to ruin him. But Giuliani, I don't see you having to deal with what you put them through. Um, this is equitable justice. And let us not forget, Giuliani, you are a trained attorney, sir. If anybody in the United States of America is aware of the adverse impact of defaming another person or a business, it should be you. You should be held not to a standard, but a higher standard in my book. All right, do you see this any other way, Rivana?
I mean, I completely agree. I've been following and reporting on this trial throughout the week. I'll have to note for the audience how brief this trial was. Their jury is already deliberating. Uh, they deliberated for a good portion of yesterday because, as you mentioned, Dr. Ritchie, uh, Rudy Giuliani's attorney made a statement saying that Rudy Giuliani will not be testifying. He claims it was because they didn't want to hurt the women any further, but I'll. I'll confidently say that that's absolutely not the reason why he wasn't testifying. He doesn't want to further implicate himself for the upcoming criminal trial that's in right. Georgia. Um, because we know that he doesn't care about the harm he caused these women, the deep, deep harm he caused these women. They had to move their houses because they were getting harassed in person. One of the women during a job interview had the interviewer pull up on his phone an article that mentioned the quotes from Rudy Giuliani and ask her, are you the person who tried to steal the election? She had to just walk out. That was a job gone. And these were two women doing thankless jobs in the first place. Election workers are not paid particularly well. These women you know, devoted a portion of their time to doing this work and we they should be thanked and not harassed. But we know that Rudy Giuliani doesn't care about the damage he did to their reputation or their lives and their safety because every day aside from yesterday when he left that courtroom after the trial, when he walked outside the courthouse, he continued to defame those women to the press. He continued to assert, despite the fact that he's already been found liable for defamation, that he wasn't lying, that he was telling the truth and that those women are the real liars. And he'll say, "Oh, it's unfortunate what happened to them, but then try to shirk any responsibility for what happened to them when it is his fault, when it is Donald Trump's fault, the president of the United States boosting, amplifying these bold-faced lies about these two women. I mean, Rudy Giuliani tried to claim they were passing each other a USB drive like it was, and he said, vials of heroin or cocaine, which obviously was a racist comment on his part. But in reality, she was getting a ginger mint. She was receiving right. a ginger mint. It's just despicable what he did to these women, and they deserve, and I believe, I believe they will, the jury will decide to give them a large, large settlement and damages in this case. And that, and they deserve every penny. They deserve more than yep. what they're asking for, but they'll deserve every single penny they get. That's right. And I hope they move to seize assets immediately because he's broke as hell. Yeah. Um, he, he still owns a few things. So you're going to have to just get your stuff out of those products he bought over the years. We saw it, video, a cop beating a woman. He struck her 17 times. The penalty, 40 hours suspended. Back on the job. Let me take you to the video and give you the update. Here it is.
All right, put up the picture. I had a conversation with a police officer who works as a supervisor for a local police department in Georgia. And he told me off record that what you're looking at right now, when the officers surround a person like that, what you're looking at is an actual attempt to hide the person who's hitting the individual on the ground. It is a technique they practice. It's a tactic in order to protect the officer who is physically striking the individual on the ground. This is something they've done for many years, he said. It is a well-known tactic off books. According to Charlotte Mecklenburg officials, police officer Vincent Piston, who was captured on video striking a Bojangles employee by the name of Christina Pierre more than a dozen times, has been given a 40-hour suspension. Bystander video showed multiple officers surrounding Ms. Pierre, who authorities allege was resisting arrest. When Officer Piston appeared to hit her repeatedly as onlookers urged him to stop. Put up the police chief, Johnny Jennings. So he made the announcement on Tuesday regarding the incident that took place November 13th. This is his statement, the internal affairs hearing on the seven officers involved ruled that six officers were exonerated or justified. And one officer was sustained, not justified. 14 strikes to the female's legs or leg came after her hands were behind her back. These strikes were not deemed justified. 14 now, okay? 14 strikes, 14 punches after she was subdued, not justified. After three leg strikes, the officer should have made an assessment to determine next steps before continuing strikes. The officer will receive a 40-hour suspension as a result. Put up his picture again. Chief, I have a question for you, sir. What if somebody hit your daughter 14 times? Hmm? How about your mama? Is it worth a 40-hour suspension? Why would you make that call against somebody else's daughter? Why would you make this call in reference to someone else's mother? Police confirmed one officer involved in the initial encounter with Pierre hit her in the face before she was struck by piston. We have the evidence here. In body cam footage, the officer later tells another officer, she punched me in the face, so I struck her back, end quote. The department also released nine minute, a nine-minute video from police street and bystander footage. During the incident, two officers noticed Pierre and a male subject, Pierre's fiance, Anthony Lee, sitting at a bus stop, allegedly smoking marijuana after work. Now, I want you to understand, marijuana in their jurisdiction is typically not an arrestable offense. It is typically not an arrestable offense. They can write citations for it, and you get to go on with your day, okay? Um, here's the other video.
What's up, guys? I was hanging out. I just got off of work. Huh? I just got off of work. What did we do wrong? Well, it smelled like you smoked weed. Oh, this is stuff from the store. It's not in the store. You smoking weed? You guys smoking weed? It's coming from the store. Well, I, I can smell it coming from that. So. We got it from the smoke shop. Okay, well, go ahead. Get there. Put your hand back. Whoa, 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 We will now show a video of the incident provided to CMPD by an anonymous community member. Pretty sure you're not allowed to do that to police. wanted you to see that because I need you to understand the position and the public relations campaign of the police department. They want you to question the guilt and innocence of a person, something that by the way, they're unable to determine. But they want you to weigh the guilt of an individual as justification for extreme violent and criminal activity of an officer. It does not matter if the interaction is lawful, if the police conduct becomes unlawful. Do you understand that part? And these are elements utilized by police and policing agencies in order to make it seem as if they had no other choice. Remember, typically, it is not an arrestable offense in that jurisdiction. That is why the two individuals were shocked that they were being arrested for it, all right? Um, the cops then approached the duo and were told they purchased it from the smoke shop. They attempted to arrest Lee, claiming that Pierre tried to interfere, adding that both were uncooperative. In the video um, breakdown, the police alleged that Pierre repeatedly assaulted the officer first while resisting arrest adding that the officer struck her in the face in response to her actions. Three angles of the body cam footage show the backup officers running toward the area, ordering Lee to stop resisting and handcuffing him. When officers, officers approached Pierre, police said her hands were under her stomach while lying down, and they tried to put them behind her back, all right? Um, and they did receive multiple charges. So uh, Ray Vonna, thoughts here. 
I mean, it's absolutely despicable. And I'm really glad that you mentioned that it's not typically an arrestable offense in this jurisdiction. Of course, this will just be a quick opportunity to say that no one should be getting arrested for weed anywhere in this country. No one should be going to jail for weed anywhere in this country. Um, But it's a perfectly reasonable reaction to when someone starts putting their hands on you physically that you might want to fight back. And we are expecting these victims to be perfect and to behave in an ideal way and not react when an officer puts their hands on them or a loved one, especially in such an unjust situation. That expectation is not fair. Most of us would not react in that perfect way if we were put in those situations. That No one should have gotten arrested that day. The officer should not have interfered. Probably shouldn't have just left them alone anyway. They weren't harming anybody. Um, But the officers obviously in the department tried to show in that clip, well, she fought back, so she deserved what she got. And, you know, we did punish him. We gave him 40 hours off, a little long weekend, essentially. Uh, But it's absurd because it's just a natural reaction. It's just a natural reaction to want to defend yourself. Uh, And he was larger than her. The idea that he needed to get his licks back against her, that that was some form of justice is despicable. But that's the narrative that this police department and so many police departments try to push in order to protect their officers. Because let's face it, they don't actually care about serving and protecting the public. They care about protecting their officers when they know that they've done wrong. Yeah, and this whole narrative that has come out from the chief to say, yeah, the guy did engage in excessive force. You gotta understand the irony of this. He engaged in excessive force. They have the number of times he physically assaulted a human being. Um, and they're not calling it a crime. Well, you know what excessive force is? It's a crime. Uh, if somebody engages in excessive force at your place of business, guess what happens? They go to jail. It's called assault. There is no gray area. There's no legal statute that allows a cop to engage in excessive force. These are elements in our society we have accepted as normative even though they're adverse to every statutory doctrine we have. Kid suspended again, again and again because of his hairstyle. Let's put up the picture for a mask. This is an update. Daryl George, a Texas student who has been disciplined and kept away from his classroom for months because of his hairstyle. His hairstyle not likely, making it not likely that he will be back to his class anytime soon. Efforts by Daryl George's attorney to ask a judge to pause his punishment by his Houston area school district over his hairstyle, his locks, as well as a civil rights lawsuit he and his family filed in September, remain on hold in federal court. Um, George 18 returned to in-school suspension at his campus, Barbers Hill High School. Once again in Texas, last week, for now, he will remain in in school suspension. Before that, he has spent a month at an off-site disciplinary program as if he did something behaviorally wrong, and that is not the case. They don't like what you're looking at, his expressed cultural hairstyle. George's family has filed a formal complaint with the Texas Education Agency and a federal civil rights lawsuit against Governor Greg Abbott and Attorney General Ken Paxton, who should be in prison, by the way, along with the school district, alleging 
They failed to enforce the Crown Act. The lawsuit is before U.S. District Judge Charles Eskridge. The school district had filed a separate lawsuit in state court asking a judge to clarify whether it's a dress code restriction or dress code restrictions limiting student hair length for boys, a violation of the Crown Act. But Georgia's attorney filed a motion to move the lawsuit to federal court. That separate case is before another Houston federal judge. During Wednesday's court hearing, Eskridge discussed a motion to consolidate the two lawsuits, as well as motions to dismiss the lawsuit against Abbott and Paxton and the school district to move the case to federal court in nearby Galveston. Attorney Ali Booker says she is hoping to argue a motion asking for a temporary injunction that would halt the school district's punishment of George until his case is resolved. But she said she can't do that until Judge Eskridge rules on these other motions first. And that might not happen until early next year. Barbara Hill's policy on student hair was previously challenged in a May 2020 federal lawsuit filed by two other students. Both students withdrew from the high school, but one returned after a federal judge granted a temporary injunction, saying the student showed a substantial likelihood that his rights to free speech and to be free from race discrimination would be violated if not allowed to return to campus. That lawsuit remains pending. So let me explain what you have here. The school knows it is not on solid legal ground. But because there has been no adjudication, they are willing to continue moving forward in an aggressive way where taxpayers will eventually have to pay money. Knowing good and damn well, a federal judge has already told you what the ruling will be if you keep messing with them. That didn't matter. We're still going to suspend black children, okay? Making sure the good people of your district will pay more money because you will be held liable through the tax system um, of the institution, all right, of the school. Put them up, Prince, uh, Principal uh, Lance Murphy, okay, wrote that George was repeatedly or has repeatedly violated the district's, quote, previously communicated standards of conduct, student conduct. And then you got Superintendent Dr. Greg Poole since 2006 has said the policy is legal and teaches students to conform as a sacrifice benefiting everyone. I mean, they sound like a cult, right? Uh, the policy is for conformity, which is going to benefit white people. I mean, uh, everybody. Make everybody feel good here. Uh, it's a hell of a thing. Rayvonna, these people are li- literally, let, let me just break this down. I'm so glad that um, you know you, you went to law school. So the man is saying um, in 2006, it was legal. Or 2006, it was legal. 2007, it was legal. Great. It was then deemed illegal later. So what do you do with that? He's still citing the the law and the interpretation of the courts prior to today. What in the hell is going on? These folks are involved in education. You would think they could critically think. It's such an insane argument to make because there were plenty of things that were legal uh, decades ago that are, 
have been overturned now. And there is no argument that can be made. I mean, the school has no leg to stand on when it comes to the Crown Act. This is a clear, a clear violation of exactly what the law is meant to protect. And it's gone into effect. They are supposed to be abiding by its standards. The school's argument is essentially that, well, it doesn't say anything about hair length, which is a non-argument. It is a total non-argument because even if the law doesn't say anything specifically about hair length, this is a protected hairstyle under the law. You can't skirt around the spirit of the law simply by saying, well, this specific word is not mentioned anywhere in it. Because that's an argument that can also be used by supporters of the law to right. show that the school is in the wrong. And we covered this story last week and I said at the beginning, that I was sad that we have to keep giving updates to this story because this has, it started out as this, but it's just been shown time and time again that this is just punitive action against this student, targeted harassment of this individual. They are depriving him of an education. They shipped him off to a disciplinary school just to allow him back to sit in in-school suspension all day long. He's not getting the necessary social interaction that you should be getting in high school. He's not getting the education. He's not getting anything meaningful out of this. And this, how can the school argue that this is better than just a allowing him to freely express himself through his hair. There's no argument to be made, but the unfortunate fact of the matter is he might not even be in school anymore by the time a decision comes down. It would be fortunate to have this ruling on the books for future students, but he should also, they should intervene. I mean, this is a clear deprivation of his rights, his right to education, what they're doing to him right now. The courts should be intervening. Uh, and it seems like they're gonna let this be stretched out. It's really yeah. sad for this child. It is, and um, you know, at some point, judges will have to hold officials like this in contempt. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they violate the contempt order, take them to jail. I, I know that seems extreme, but you have to understand what's at stake here. Either we are going to respect the court, and respect laws or we're not. And that's exactly what's being enforced here, or hopefully will be enforced here. All right, welcome back. We got a lot of show left. Let me go to some of these comments. Always fascinating. Lynn, civil equivalent of the death penalty. Uh, these women received actual death threats due to Giuliani's lies. That's right. That's right. Uh, next to a two reporter, a typical pathetic response to police brutality from our police departments, 40 hours, not even two full days. They are just showing their true colors, right? And it's so insane because he's admitting the guy engaged in activity unbecoming. Uh, and it's a violation of policy rules, but naturally it's a violation of law, okay? That could have easily uh, been an arrestable offense. Um, LaShonda Clark, thank you for that. Ray Ray, that's right, in flesh. And Librio, I can't even show up late for work and keep my job because it's bad conduct. But this cop can brutalize people and get a week off on my bad suspension. Yep, uh, and uh, guarantee it was paid, okay? All right, that's something for you. Ladies and gentlemen, I wish you Karen would. You wanna call the police on them for having a barbecue on a and Sunday? You're gonna feel Back off! I'm gonna tell them there's an African American man threatening my life. 
finals locations change. Yes. And yours is going to change right now because I have over 70 students, you have 35. So the smart, practical thing to do is... But you made an assumption that you had this room. Yeah, I made that assumption because for 15 years I've taken the final exam in the same classroom I've taught in always. And because... Where, what room are you assigned for the final? This one right here. I want to see it on your mind. I don't screen. have to because I never have been assigned a finals room. Oh. The reason is because I always take the final in the same classroom I teach Well, then why don't they have it blocked out? Don't know. It's an imperfect world. So why can't you call the math and ask them to move me? Why do I have to solve a problem when we're in the software? Then I will call your department and your administration yeah, and solve fine. this problem. What's the number? I don't know it all. Um, put up the picture for mass here. Sir, it is not her fault that you did not prepare for class today. Obviously, the way it works, just like every other university, we get assigned rooms for final exams. Sometimes those final exams are inside of the room you teach in. Sometimes they are not. Why? Because final exams are not scheduled typically during the exact same class time. Because we give students longer opportunities to finish their exams. So you have a schedule. You said you don't look at a schedule. You haven't seen a schedule because you don't need one. It's just where you've always gone. Well, sir, it looks like somebody in the administration just said it's a new day and a new sheriff in town. You need to call them. I thought the young lady was actually quite nice, uh, providing some critical thinking analysis, saying very obvious things like, hey, not my fault. But maybe you want to call the individual who sets the calendar. Why do I need to call them for you? All right. Um, according to the TikToker um, who uploaded the video yesterday, the person is a professor at UCLA. Come on, UCLA. Come on now. Y'all supposed to be the best of the best here. All right. <laughs> Ravana, when he came in and said, my 75 trumps your 35. So, uh, if I were you, the smart thing to do is for you to go ahead and get the step. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what the man said. He was saying that as though his 75 students were about to physically fight right. her 35 students. <laughs> right. Like they were, they were going to have a mutiny and overthrow the classroom. It was so silly. But I really hated the way he was talking to that other professor, the way he was speaking down to her, um, the way that he was expecting her to fix his issue. He simply could have, it's easy to see where final exams are scheduled for. You just log into whatever sort of server that your university uses. You go to the, the page with the information, it'll tell you. Yep. This is the, the date, the time, where the final is going to be. He simply could have done that. He should have done it in advance considering he is the professor of the class. I'm sure that he had misled some of his students in that class also about where the location of the exam was supposed to be. Um, he simply could have done that or like she suggested, call administration, figure it out. But she was in the right and he was talking to her all types of crazy, so inappropriately. Uh, and she handled it with a lot of grace that he did not deserve and good for her. Yeah, yeah, really good for her. She looks like, um, Professor of the Year material to me. All right.
update. You know, the cop who shot an 11 year old child, the child is the one who called the police. He shoots the child. The child survived significantly injured. He has now been found not liable. I'm going to remind you of what this did to this young man. Here it is. He said, said everybody come out with your hands up. I, then I came running inside the living room. And then, then I remember I heard the big bang. I just remember holding my chest. As he laid in his mother's arms, bleeding out from a gunshot wound, 11-year-old Adarian Murray was so convinced he was going to die, he began to pray to God and sing gospel songs. I think like, like I'm going, going to die. Tell, her, tell my whole family, tell my teacher, I say, I say I'm sorry for, for what I did. Darian's mother says he developed a collapsed lung and suffered fractured ribs and a lacerated liver due to the gunshot wound. He spent days in the ICU at the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson, needing a ventilator to breathe. It came right here. More than a week since the shooting, he is remarkably in good spirits, but says sometimes when he's alone with his thoughts for too long, he has nightmares. Sometimes. I can see myself laying inside the coffin. I'm all my thoughts at night, my only ones. I sometimes think people are watching me. But my main thought is me dead. If that officer was here, sitting right here across from you, what would you want to tell him, Darian? Why did you do it? I could have lost, lost my life all because of you. I want you terminated for what you did to me. He's actually very reasonable uh, and obviously um, amazingly strong young man. He just wanted the cop to no longer have a job um, because you know, who wants a cop who shoots children, right? Put up the picture. <clears throat> Nearly seven months after a, a Mississippi police officer named Greg Capers, that's him there, shot the 11 year old Adrian Murray in the chest during a domestic call. The young Mr. Murray is showing you just days after this, his wound and the bandages. A Sunflower County grand jury decided not to indict the cop after hearing evidence from the attorney general's office. The child's mother had instructed her child to call the police because the father father of another one of her kids was being hostile. That officer he called arrived and shot him and shot the child who was doing what his mother told him. 
and probably believed that the police actually would protect and serve until this happened. After the shooting, Capers was placed on paid administrative leave, and later that leave was changed to unpaid leave. Capers went before the Board of Aldermen most recently in November to ask for his job back, but his return has not been approved. Meanwhile, the child's mother, Nicola Murray, after finally seeing the body camera footage from the shooting, is asking for it to be released publicly. Watching that footage was nothing I was prepared for emotionally, but it was something I had to do. She said Wednesday during a press conference, I feel disgusted, outraged, and emotionally damaged. But in all of those things, all of those feelings, I feel blessed. This has been a process of fighting for justice for my son. Put him up. Arguments for and against the release of the body cam footage have played out in federal court by way of a federal lawsuit filed in May against Capers. The city and police chief, Ronald Sampson, attorney um, Carlos Moore has been fighting for the release of that footage. The city and police chief asked for the video to be sealed from the public to protect the privacy of the child. But his name has already been made public since the shooting. Moore filed a motion to compel the release of the video, which a judge approved last week, but with restrictions. Um, Ms. Murray, Mr. Moore, and his legal team could view it, but they would not be allowed to share the video or any description about it publicly. Although they are not able to release the video, the city can. Quote, I am here to demand the city to release it to the public, Moore said Wednesday. Um, that day, Moore filed an objection to US Magistrate Judge David Sanders' order, making it clear they wanted to be able to disseminate the body camera video and talk about it. Moore wrote that the evidence should have been filed with the circuit clerk's office, making it a public record. That order will be appealed, Moore said. He said there is no set timeline of when the district court judge would make a ruling, but he hopes they will rule in his client's favor and side with the public. Now, this is all mangled, right? They're claiming we are protecting um, the child here because the child is a minor. That's baloney, we know that. Uh, this is to protect the police department, to protect the cop who did it, their reputation. The last thing they care about is that black child you saw with a bullet wound inside of his body, okay? Transparency typically creates transformation, and that's the part that they're trying to stop from happening. So I encourage everybody who sees this segment to do what you can do to put pressure upon their jurisdiction to do the right thing, not only by this child, but by every child after this. All right, Ravana thoughts. I mean, God, that video was so heart wrenching. I was yeah. tearing up watching that child who have, you know, that grace in the face of a horrifying tragedy that he was subjected to, that he shouldn't having to have gone through something that no child, no adult should have to go through, but especially no child. Um, just to 
comment on the argument being made by the police department that they're protecting his privacy. It's a bogus argument. As you pointed out, Dr. Ritchie, his name is already out there, but he and his family are fighting for that very tape to be released. And if that was their primary concern, the police department's primary concern, then blur his face in the video. I've seen them do it plenty of times when releasing body cam footage, blur his face, release the tape. But the issue is they don't actually care about protecting this child or other children. Because if they did, the police officer that walked in guns blazing and shot this child in the chest would not have a job anymore. <laughs> so That's right. it's they are just protecting themselves. They're protecting the officer. They are not protecting this child, his family, or the other children that you know fall under their jurisdiction. That's right. And here's the thing about rights, and you know this as well. You have a right to privacy uh, under certain circumstances. You have a right to a jury trial, right? But all of those rights, you can waive them. You can waive every single one of those rights and say, you know what? I plead guilty. I don't want a jury trial. You know what? I waive the right to privacy for this. But for some reason, they are not allowed, the family is not allowed to waive anything. It is insane. We got more on the other side. It's indisputable. Stick and stay. Members of Congress, they've had to write a letter led by Congressman Hank Johnson against President Joe Biden. This is rare, but it is necessary given what's at stake. I'm going to read the entire letter. Let's put it up. US Representatives Hank Johnson out of the state of Georgia. I used to work for Congressman Johnson. And he is a friend and a mentor. He's a good man. And Bonnie Watson Coleman sent a letter yesterday urging the Biden administration to address the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, particularly as it relates to pregnant women being killed and babies being slaughtered and left to die. The letter emphasizes the lack of medical resources available for pregnant women to give birth and newborn babies to receive proper neonatal care. The letter, which has 17 co-signers, urges President Biden to take action. I'm going to show you some of those co-signers while I read this letter. Dear President Biden, we are writing to express our deepest concerns regarding the ongoing humanitarian disaster taking place in Gaza. Where over 18,000 people have been killed and many others are missing and presumed dead in the rubble left by the relentless bombardment that also threatens the safety of hostages being held by the terrorist group Hamas. Most alarming is the impact the bombardment is having on women and children who make up approximately 70% of the casualties reported since the start of the war. We witnessed the great hope and optimism, the diplomacy and dialogue that produced the seven day ceasefire during which time dozens of innocent Israeli and other hostages were freed from captivity while much needed aid was allowed to flow into Gaza. Now that the relentless bombing campaign resumed with no end in sight, the casualties continue to mount. We believe that diplomacy is the only way forward to achieve peace. And much more must be done towards long-term peace in the Middle East. We write with great urgency about 5,500 women in Gaza who are expected to give birth within the next 30 days. 
These women have limited access to medical professionals, safe delivery spaces, sanitary supplies, and clean water. The necessities to bring life into the world. With continuous bombardment causing displacement and unsanitary living conditions, the more than 180 deliveries each day are becoming emergency C-sections or premature births. Furthermore, the United Nations Population Fund reports alarming instances in which C-sections have been performed on women in labor without access to anesthesia. Newborns in Gaza are especially vulnerable. Since premature babies rely on neonatal and intensive care services, the impact of instability and power outages caused by the lack of fuel in Gaza along with evacuations and continuous bombardment pose severe threats to babies' lives. We are heartbroken by the report of nurses who were urged to evacuate Al Nasir Medical Center in Gaza City due to incoming bombardment, leaving behind premature babies relying on oxygen. Two weeks later, the nurses were able to return to the hospital during the humanitarian ceasefire. The babies were found dead. In addition, a reported 6,600 children have died in Gaza since October 7th, and hundreds more are estimated to be trapped in the rubble of collapsed buildings. Moreover, we are alarmed by recent reporting in the New York Times that indicates your administration, talking about Biden, is effectively bypassing the congressional review process for arms sales by moving forward with a sale of $106 million worth of tank ammunition to Israel through an emergency provision in the Arms Export Control Act. This action is especially concerning in light of the fact that members of Congress have repeatedly urged your administration to ensure that US arms are used in accordance with US law, international humanitarian law, and the law of armed conflict. These grave circumstances have resulted in ongoing and preventable crisis and the collective punishment of women and children. The scale of devastation is unfathomable and unacceptable. For this reason, we urge your administration to do the following. Number one, urge a ceasefire and immediate halt of offensive military attacks, including bombardments and other military operations. Number two, Press the Israeli government to allow sufficient fuel to sustain civilian life in Gaza, including fuel for the operation of hospitals, the pumping and treatment of clean water, and the maintenance of basic sanitation services. Number three, facilitate the restoration of commercial activity and much needed humanitarian aid efforts to provide basic life-saving goods and services to the population of Gaza. Number four, continue working to release all hostages especially women and mothers, as was done during the seven-day humanitarian pause, and work with international partners to pressure Hamas to allow International Committee of the Red Cross visits and care for all hostages held in Gaza until their release is secured. As the conflict rages with no end in sight, and places of refuge within Gaza become more overcrowded and less safe, we urge you to use your influence and resources to advocate for an immediate ceasefire. The protection of civilians, particularly 
pregnant women and children in Gaza is paramount. Additionally, we implore you to facilitate the restoration of commercial activity and much needed humanitarian aid efforts to provide basic life-saving goods and services to the population of Gaza. Signed, Congressman Hank Johnson, Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman, and the other co-signers as you have seen. We voted for the guy. Even Vice President Harris came out and said, the White House needs to have a more humanitarian position as it relates to the Palestinians. Who do you think she's talking about? Ravana, what are your thoughts on this? I'm really glad that you read the letter in full because I think it contains so much detail and facts that people just aren't getting particularly in mainstream news coverage. They'll hear it here, but I think it's important to hear it and know that it's coming from our elected officials, members of the Democratic Party who are acting very bravely in going against the leader of their party, Joe Biden, and criticizing the administration from within the party and more be extremely more aligning themselves with the positions of the Democratic voters. 80% of Democratic voters want a cease fire. A majority of Americans want a cease fire. So why can't Joe Biden want a cease fire? And I think it's important that we're talking about this today. Um, because so much of the justification for the action, for the what is a genocide that's happening in Gaza is that they need to protect the hostages. They need to retrieve the hostages. And today we're getting reports that three hostages were gunned down by IDF forces, shot point blank, killed by the IDF. The, <laughs> the military that we are giving money to, that we're giving weapons to, and that Joe Biden and American representatives in the UN are giving political power to, to prevent you know important votes that would undermine what Israel is carrying out in Gaza. The rhetorical support that President Biden is continuously offering the far right government of Israel and the genocide that they're carrying out in Gaza. And you know, we're getting less and less reports from those on the ground journalists in Gaza because of the lack of electricity, which Israel is causing because of the lack of internet that Israel is causing and the bombardment happening in the south where they were told they would be safe. It's not safe there anymore. It's not safe for, for men, women, and children anywhere in Gaza. And there are tireless relief workers on the ground fighting for their voices to be heard and fighting to try to do the small, the modicum amount that they can do to provide some relief to the people of Gaza. And they're being attacked by the IDF. Red Crescent ambulance drivers were forced out of their vehicle by the IDF, stripped naked and forced to kneel on the ground. This is the government that this is the military that our taxpayer dollars are going to. This is the military that Joe Biden is supporting. And I am so proud to see my representative signed on to this letter, to see these representatives speak out for the Palestinian people and against Joe Biden specifically because he has been so vocal in his support for what's going on there. Yeah, hell of a thing. 
It's a hell of a thing. And when you consider how many children are being killed, the Palestinian people, they're a young, they're a young community, young, average age 19.2. On the Gaza Strip, 40% of the Palestinians are 14 years of age and under. Look it up. So when you hear about death tolls, it's not the military, it's not a terrorist group, these are just people, right? This is a call for humanity. Cops brutalized a woman weeks before George Floyd and it's eerily similar. Here's the video. Get your knee out her back! Get your knee out her back! Get out your knee out her back! Get your knee out her back! She can't breathe! She can't breathe! She can't breathe! Yo, is she alright? Hey, yo, take it easy with her, man. She's a young lady. Anybody got Where's that? Yo, give me, give me that phone. Give me my phone. Give me your phone. That's my sister. Give me her phone. That's my sister. Give me her phone. That's my sister. Give me her phone. Give me her phone. Stay back. 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 That's a female. Put up the comparison photo, and I'm going to give you the background to what you just saw. This was a violent arrest in 2020, disturbing similarities to the murder of George Floyd. This is Ms. Christine Greaves. In New York, the lawyer representing Ms. Greaves, who alleges the use of excessive force during that 2020 arrest by police, is drawing parallels between her case and the tragic circumstances surrounding the death of Mr. Floyd. This incident happened one week before his murder. The attorney has filed a civil claim pressing the city of New York, the New York Police Department, and nine of its officers for a six-figure payout citing lingering damages from the ordeal. Five of the cops are named in the complaint, four are not because their identities are presently unknown. The legal complaint outlines 15 distinct accusations against the defendants, encompassing charges such as wrongful arrest and disproportionate application of force. So you have an attorney, attorney Uzo, filed the lawsuit on behalf of the 23-year-old in Eastern District of New York. After her arrest, May 2nd, 2020, the young woman was attending a gathering following a funeral in Brooklyn and reportedly was violating the city's COVID-19 lockdown mandates. Later that evening, she and her partner, Davis Smith, stood on the front porch of their home when they observed a large number of police officers converge in front of their home, harassing some of their friends and relatives who were mourning with them. 
The young woman pulled out her cell phone and started to record the altercation, but was told to cut the recording off by some of the officers. That's according to her attorney. The officers threatened to seize her cell phone and arrest and charge her with crimes, the complaint alleges. Now, that's the reason the brother was saying, let me get her cell phone, because he knew what this was about, okay? There's more, put them up. Some of the officers captured in her video, um, we got Captain Sean Claxton. Can you believe this person is a supervising a, a cop? He's on the left. Officer Michael um, Nate Palatino, Samantha Love, Sergeant Derek Joff, and Sergeant Harold Thompson also recorded for two additional officers unnamed in the suit. According to the complaint, officers forcibly grabbed her and slammed her down on the floor, punching, kicking, cursing, screaming, and yelling at her. One of the officers was singled out, captured on the video, pinning her down and choking her by kneeling on her neck while Claxton and another cop who we do not know, but the shield number is 23624, grabbed her other body parts. It further claimed that officers were particularly violent while detaining her, punching, kicking, cursing, screaming, and yelling before hauling her off to the 77th precinct where her suit says she was made to participate in an illegal and unlawful search which yielded no contraband. That is likely a strip search, okay? The lawyer contends her client already suffers from asthma, which was exacerbated by the arrest. Greaves' request to be transported to a hospital for medical care was denied, another policy violation. Now, according to the lawyer, his client is traumatized and is seeking to be awarded damages in the six-figure ballpark. The NYPD has not commented on the lawsuit or the arrest. Look at your commissioner. You're looking at Commissioner Edward A. Caban. He started his position in July. Sir, you have an opportunity to actually be a leader here. We shall see your next move. Um, so extreme. Ravana, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it just it reminds me that so much of the uh, uprisings after the atrocious murder of George Floyd were not just about that one instance, but it's about this culture of violence against black and brown people at the hands of police in this country. Because this is an eerily similar situation that didn't get a fraction of the coverage. And it makes you think about how often this is happening. And if there isn't you know, someone recording, if there isn't someone around who's able to capture the abuse, is it going to get the same level of coverage? Will these officers be held to account? And it's happening every day. Police are brutalizing black and brown people every day in this country. And not all of those victims have recordings that are going to go viral, that people are going to you know, show on the news. And those officers are just gonna be allowed to act with impunity in that situation. This was a clear abuse of police power. <laughs> they harassed her for filming them and then attempted to search in hopes that they would find some sort of contraband that they could use to justify the brutality of the situation. But I think that it's important to note that we're fighting to improve conditions across the board to make 
police reform on a wide scale so that these situations don't go under the radar anymore, no matter where they happen. And she deserves this justice. And she it's taken a long time from when it happened to now. But I, you know, I'm confident that given the stark reality of that that police violence in this case, that she will get some justice here. Yep, that is the hope. Always a pleasure having your remarkable breakdowns with us. Tell people how they can follow you and check out your work. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on again, Dr. Richie. Pleasure as always. Everybody can follow me on Twitter at Ravana TTV for updates on what I'm doing. You can also see my videos every day for Rebel HQ on YouTube and Facebook. All right, there it is. Until next time. Okay, bullpen is next. Stick and stay. All right, let's get it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the bullpen. All right, he's back. We have White House correspondent Christian Daytop, Washington Examiner. Always great to have you on the program, sir. Been a minute. How are you? I'm great, Dr. Richie. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, I've missed joining you in the afternoons. Yeah, man, same here. So we're going to make sure we. Um, you know, we get you here more in 2024, but we, we got you for the last one in 2023. And this is going to be a little different. Um, I want to talk about the presidential um, election, but in the context of Joe Biden. Because earlier today on my show, I read a letter from members of Congress against Joe Biden about his lack of humanitarian response to the Palestinian people. This was after Vice President Kamala Harris basically criticized him by saying the White House needs to take a more humanitarian position as it relates to the Palestinians. Who is she talking about? She's talking about Joe Biden. Biden seems to be slow to understand why 80% of the Democratic voters in America agree with the ceasefire. How do you see it? I think you've basically hit the nail on the head and Joe Biden is moving slowly. But what we're seeing right now, uh, the comments that the president has made at these closed door fundraisers with Democratic donors and even sending Jake Sullivan to Israel and to, and to Gaza uh, to meet with Israeli and Palestinian officials. I think it shows the recognition about what you just laid out, namely that the Democratic voters, especially the progressive wing of the party, uh, are, I would say, less than happy, but I think that's not even strong enough. They're very, very perturbed with the way the president has backed Benjamin Netanyahu in this bombing campaign that we've seen in northern and now southern Gaza. It's not just here in the US, it's people all around the world condemning the actions of the IDF. And this is going to be a major political headache for the president unless he shifts US policy heading into next year. You know, I said something when Biden was candidate Biden. I said, everybody who's supporting candidate Biden for president is supporting him because Trump is the other option. So you're not voting for Biden because you're excited about Biden. Um, you're excited to vote against giving Donald Trump power again. And so that was kind of the main emphasis. And even if you look at the polling data, when Biden polled against other Democrats, um, he didn't poll that well except for electability. Now electability, he was number one. Everybody just assumed he's the most electable even though he wasn't the first pick given an even choice. So he gets 
the primary nod by the electability argument gets in. So you're not excited about voting for Joe. And if you say you're excited about voting for Joe Biden, you're a damn lie. So he gets in. He's president. He's an institutionalist. All right. We all know this. But the way he has doubled down with Netanyahu seemed to be even more extreme than, let's say, um, another more traditionalist Democrat. It, there's usually at least a level of political nuance, uh, meaning there's nuance in your speech. There's nuance in the way you contextualize it, right? President Obama did it quite well where he would uh, take these very traditional democratic norms and provide some nuance, at least in his commentary about it. Biden did not see the need to do that. Huge mistake, I believe. What say you? I say what we're seeing right now with President Biden's support for Israel and Netanyahu in particular uh, is just exactly what we've come to know about him over the past 50 plus years that he's been in government. Let's not forget these two men, their relationship dates back to Biden's time on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee when Netanyahu worked uh, as uh, an official in the Israeli embassy to the United States and then went on to be the United Nations ambassador for Israel. So it's not surprising that he's backing him up. And I think this is a problem that Biden is dealing with, not just in terms of the war in Israel, but in almost every issue that progressives care about right now, whether it be immigration, whether it be student loan debt relief, whether it be gun violence, he is late to pick up where voters are and it's hampered him in the polls. I mean, if you look at his approval rating right now, I think he's hovering right around 38% approval in the real clear politics aggregate. I mean, that's abysmal. That's lower than any president at this point in time, dating back to Jimmy Carter. Let me stress that again. He's lower than Donald Trump. He is lower than Bill Clinton. He is lower than George W. Bush. Of course, George W. Bush had a giant wartime bump. That being said, the wars the US is involved in, even tangentially under Joe Biden's watch, they seem to be hurting his public opinion. So I think this is a factor that uh, Democrats are um, unfortunately dealing with right now. Over two thirds of the party doesn't want him to be the nominee. But at this point in the game, you've got himself, you've got Dean Phillips, you've got Marion Williamson. It's not like there are a lot of national Democrats willing to stick their neck out on the line and primary this guy, despite the fact that he's wildly unpopular in any number of issue categories. Yeah, and I have to mention um, Jen Uger. Uh, who is also a candidate for president, uh, said uh, some of the very same things you said, that basically you got two thirds of the party saying no. You have a historic low as it relates to your polling right now in the field. These things are so problematic that you almost are handing over the election to whoever the um, nominee is for the Republican Party. Um, I hope that's not the case naturally, but that's definitely in the tea leaves. So before you go, Here's a dynamic that I find quite interesting that may happen. At the end of the day, the Democratic Party is a company. The Republican Party is a company. These are organizations. These organizations have the ability to broker their convention. As a matter of fact, that's the way it used to be done. This wasn't a national election and we took the vote total for here and here and then we came up with a candidate. Um, They used to just go to a convention and broker that thing. All right, they can still do that technically. It would create a lot of ripples. But do you see any any room? I'm you you're you're there. You're in DC. You talk to these folks. Is there any space for Joe Biden to actually step down and not run for president in the general? 
there's space. And even if it's later in the primary, the delegates that he wins in those states that have already been decided at the primary or the caucus level, they could become unpledged. Uh, this isn't a situation like 2016 where we've got super delegates. Those people would be able to select and vote for whoever they wanted to at the convention in August. And let's not take Biden's words uh, you know, for granted here. He told us just about a week and a half ago, he thinks there are roughly 50 Democrats who could beat Donald Trump in a general election. And you've got folks like Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, they're both popular uh, governors of Democratic states. They have super PACs, national name recognition. If Biden were to drop out, I would expect them to try and jump in the, the race late or even potentially be written in by these delegates come August. But again, we just don't know how sour the public will turn on the president between now and next summer. Uh, he has stated he wants to stay in the race, but how this thing is going, it's going to take a miracle for the Biden team to turn the ship around and try and reverse his polling against what's probably going to be a rematch with Donald Trump in November of 2024. Yeah, and Christian, you're a very smart analyst. You followed this a long time. Do you really see it getting worse for Biden? I don't see how it gets much worse for him. But even with that, I also don't see how it gets significantly better within the time frame. How do you see it? I think there are really two items at play here that could bump Biden's poll numbers up. Uh, the first is the economy. We started to get some of these sort of little indications that things will tick up next year. The Fed, of course, didn't raise interest rates at their meeting earlier this week. Uh, and there is the idea that inflation could drop dramatically towards that 2% mark uh, that everyone in the Biden administration and the Federal Reserve wants to hit. I think you've also got to think about the abortion question. Uh, this is really the, the one issue uh, that is a 100% home run for Democratic lawmakers. Of course, I'm talking about political viability. We've seen it in elections in 2023. We saw it in the midterm elections in 2022. And I think Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris in particular are going to be campaigning here heavily. And they hope that can carry them to not only a primary victory, but another general election victory next November. Yeah, well, here's the thing, Christian, it's a proxy. So the war or the way he's dealing with the war becomes a proxy for so many other things that people weigh consciously and subconsciously. Uh, the issue of abortion rights uh, in America, definitely a win that was given politically, given to the Democrats by the Republicans. The Democrats didn't earn that. They were given that victory by the Republicans. And if there is nothing else, Houston, we got a problem. We got a problem. All right. Always good to have your analysis there, brother. Thank you for all you do. Happy holidays, you and the family. Take care, sir. Same to you. Thank you. All right. Remember, take care of yourself, take care of each other, take care of the planet. Remember, the truth is always indisputable.